Let me ask you to take your Bibles, please, and go to Ephesians chapter 4 this evening, Ephesians chapter 4. I hope you found that update uh, helpful tonight. I really appreciate all that uh, Pastor Jacob has done uh, to help get the Counseling Center going, and I've heard uh, good reports from folks that uh, it's actually been used in people's lives to, from outside of our church that uh, have helped them have a better view not only of uh, the Word and the walk with the Lord, but also uh, toward our assembly. And so I think that's a, a great thing, and, and uh, praise God for that. I wanted, I wanted to actually sort of follow up on this morning uh, the comment I made about belief-driving behavior uh, by grounding that, uh, that statement in another text of Scripture. I think there's uh, several that we could look at, but in another text of Scripture, and then, uh, and then trying to talk some practical application of it. If that's true, then, then how should we go about uh, shaping our beliefs so that they drive behaviors that are pleasing and honoring to God? So Ephesians chapter 4, I'd like to look at verses 22 through 24. I alluded to those this morning. You can see, uh, if you've got the right Bible, uh, verse 17 is in bold. Verse 24 is in bold. That's the way the New American Standard Bible marks off the paragraphs. So basically it's taking 17 to 24 as a paragraph. So it's a a unit that's uh, gathered around an idea about how we are to walk differently than those who don't know Christ. Verse 17, walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. And so uh, Paul's making that case. He comes down to the, the really the pattern of what our life should be like in verses 21 to 24, when he talks about learning Christ, verse 20, you have heard him and have been taught in him just as the truth is in Jesus. Then verses 22, 23, and 24 are giving us something of a summary of what that truth is. That in the gospel... In reference to your former manner of life, verse 22, you laid aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceits, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. I've done a whole series through this part of chapter 4 that's probably out at... Sermon.audio.com is a series called Practical Christ-likeness, which was working out the ramifications of what these verses teach about how we would live our lives. Because the rest of the chapter, 25 and following, is actually giving us examples of how we would practically do what verses 22 to 24 are talking about. All right, so you put off the old self be renewed in the spirit of your mind, put on the new self. So when you look at verse 25, for instance, and it says, laying aside falsehood, that's the old life. Here's the new life, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. And verse, uh, the last part of the verse is actually the part that we're supposed to have our mind renewed, for we are members of one another. Why do I not lie? Why do I speak the truth? Well, because we're members of one another. Right, that's the the change in my thinking that should happen. Right, so when I'm when I'm speaking falsehood within the body of Christ, I'm actually lying to myself because we're all member of a body. 
Right? So I should actually be practically working out my commitment to, to love the body of Christ by showing that love through truth speaking. Right? That's the old life is marked by using information for your own advantage. Right? That's you're willing to bend the truth, shave the truth for what it will gain for you. But in your new life, you actually use information according to the standard of God's truth and you speak it truthfully because we have a new relationship with each other. So, so that's the practical outworking of the pattern here, right? And, and so it's really built on what 22 and 24 talk about. In 22, right, you are not who you used to be if you know Christ. You've put off the old self. You are not who you used to be. In fact, in verse 24, you have been made new, and, and that language is language of creation. Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The new birth produces a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Same, same concept here, right? The old self is being corrupted according to the lust of deceit. The new self has been created in the likeness of God, righteousness and holiness truth. You are a new person if you're in Christ. Now, those two actually are stated as if they are past events, practically, because in, in one sense they are. In the book of Colossians, chapter 3, it says, you have put off and you have put on. All right, here it's, it's either just a statement of fact the old man has been put off, the new man has been put on, or it could have some, some command orientation that you lay aside the old manner of life and you put on the new. The reality of it is those are sort of stated in a, in a point kind of a way. But the interesting thing about verse 23 is that it's actually in a different tense. It's present tense. And be renewed... Or you could actually translate it, be being renewed in the spirit of your mind. The, the life that you have in Christ is, verse 22, you're not the person you were. Verse 24, you are a new person. And verse 23, you are to have a new perspective on life. Right? The way you think about life is different now because of what God has done for you in Christ. Verse 20, you learned Christ. Verse 21, you've come to, you've heard him and have been taught in him just as the truth is in Jesus. So you are to be being renewed in the spirit of your mind. And I think, uh, I think you're probably familiar with other verses that would help us think about that, right? Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So, so, and this might seem, uh, might seem, uh, oversimplifying it, but I think, I think it's true actually. There's two ways in which you can look at things. The world's way or God's way. Right? And, and, and when I say the world's way, don't, don't hear, uh, just lost people. Hear, the system that is in opposition to God, right? The prince of the power of the air uh, rules over it. He's the 
ruler of this world, John chapter 12. He's the God of this world, small g, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Right? There is a system which is opposed to God and systematically shapes the view of reality in an anti-God way. It is certainly marked by people who don't know Christ because the natural man cannot receive the things of God, neither can he know them for their foolishness to him. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says. Unbelievers will consistently interpret data away from God toward their own autonomy. That's Romans 1. They look at the creation and they know there's a God. It's evident to them, but two things happen. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness and they substitute their own idol in the place of God. That's what Romans 1 says. The the natural man, the, the, the unbelieving disposition is away from God. He doesn't seek after God, so he interprets information in a way that advances his own rebellion or autonomy. Right? I don't want to live under God's rules, so how do I look at this in a way that gives me maximum freedom? I can do what I want to do. I can call my own shots. I don't have to submit to God. I'm actually going to suppress the truth that's revealed in nature about God. I'm going to, I'm going to substitute the creator out and put in his place some created thing. That's the pattern of life outside of Christ. And that systematically shapes the world in which we live. Right? So, so at every point along the way, um, that, if I could put it this way, that false religious commitment seeps into the interpretation of things. The belief system. Right? I, I say this regularly, uh, I mean, actually every school year. Uh, when we do orientation for our school teachers, and just about every year my first chapel in the school, I talk about the fact of why we have a Christian school. And it's because you, you can't know anything truly unless you know it in relationship to God. Right? All information actually finds its proper center in God. So if you're learning things Without God included, you're actually not learning them fully and properly. Right? Doesn't mean that you're 100% wrong, but you, you certainly have twisted it in a way that suppresses the revelation of God and substitutes the rightful God for some God of your own choosing. Right? That's, that's the way it works. And here's the thing you and I have to realize. Uh, we're born into a world that is shaping our thinking like that. I mean, that's, that's, that's the reality. That's why the Scriptures call on us to have our mind renewed. To not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That we are to be being renewed in the spirit of our mind. The internal operation of our mind. And one, and one of the things that I'm not going to get into it too much, but when you hear the word mind, don't think brain necessarily, right? They're not separated, but, but brain is, brain's the organ. There's something more going on than just chemical functions, 
right? We're not just a computer that operates without any value systems, loves, and affections. Have you ever seen, I mean, actually, we see this all the time nowadays, right? The same thing happens, and you see radically different interpretations of it. Right? Something objectively happened, but the perspective from which someone is viewing it is colored by their, their assumptions, their values, their commitments. Right? Because the knower is involved in the knowing. And distortion in the knower is going to enter into the equation. Right? And, and here's the deal. Depravity uh, is total. It touches every part of the human existence. It's not, it's not just our body, not just our will and emotions, but also our thought processes. And so sanctification has to attack the mind as well. It's not just a matter of bad behavior off, good behavior on. It actually affects the way we think. We, we are... We are trying to change away from a way of looking at life that excludes God and has us at the center to a way of life that includes God and has God at the center, right? What we want to come to think are the thoughts of God because those thoughts are true. Whatever God thinks about something is true. Right? He, he never makes a mistake. He never misinterprets. He never is short of any information. He knows everything exhaustively and truly, perfectly. And he has given us the word by which we are to be shaped, not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we can prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. That is, we can actually put things to the test and assess it and come to the conclusion that this is good and acceptable, perfect will of God. All right, that's, that's the call. And sometimes what we do is we, we don't recognize, right? It, we don't recognize this in the way we work through discipleship at times, the way sometimes we pursue the Christian life. We can almost create a uh, little wall, right? And we think being a good Christian is doing a, a bunch of things, right? The things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. And I do good things now. And we sort of leave our thought process, our thinking, as just sort of like an assumption, Right? And we don't realize how much our thinking is shaped by beliefs and value systems which are controlled by anti-God values and dispositions. Right? Just even think, uh, and there's a million things we could do. Right? I was trying to think of ways to illustrate it, and I started going, I'm going to throw so many illustrations out, it's going to leave everybody just like fried because I threw a million of them out. But, but just, just think of, Think of the way you view work, right? How sure are you that the beliefs, commitments, and values you have about work 
have been derived from and shaped by what the Scriptures say about it versus what you've accepted from our culture and even maybe the subculture of your family. Right? Because most of us learn to work, first of all, in our homes. And that sort of put values on it, put price tags on what kind of a job we want to have, how much we need to make, what we want to do with it. And then we are enculturated into certain jobs, and we learned the ropes inside those jobs, and we looked at people who we thought were good workers, and, and we shaped our, we, we had our thinking about it, right? And, and in fact, uh, how long we should work, how much we should work, what kind of commitments we'd have at work, when work should end, when we can finish having to work. How much of that could you say you have looked at the Scriptures and had the Scriptures shape the way you think about it? Wouldn't, it wouldn't, honestly, it wouldn't work like this. It wouldn't go totally erase this, right? Because one of the blessings that you and I have of living where we live is a lot of the culture historically was actually shaped. We used to call it this the Puritan work ethic. Right, So actually we had a Christian kind of framework that helped establish some of those things for us. And so we, we actually don't have a radically anti-God pervasively view of property and personal possessions and work and productivity. But I don't think anyone can say it hasn't been contaminated. Right, That if you're really just going to pick up your view of work by walking into the, the Barnes and Nobles. Are they still even open? They're open still, right? Okay. Go into Barnes and Nobles. Borders is the one that died, right? Whatever it is. Go on Amazon. Click to the subheading that says work. Download the top 10 bestsellers and read them and think you're not getting values being disseminated through those things. And where did those values come from? Right? I'm not saying we don't read those. We don't see what we can learn there. I'm saying just recognize it's not neutral. Right? It's, it's not actually, well, there's anti-God and there's pro-God and most of the stuff's just neutral. Everything, everything reflects beliefs. Everything reflects values, which are religious commitments. Right? Lost people have religious commitments even when they say they don't because they've taken the truth of God and they've suppressed it and they have substituted something in the place of God. They are living for something. Remember, Jesus reduced it to you cannot serve God and mammon or material. Right? Everybody serves something. It's either you're serving the true and living God according to the way he has revealed himself and how you ought to serve him, or you're serving some other God and operating by the value system of that God. Right? That's, that's the way it works. So, so a part of our growth in Christ has to be not just going, hey, I'm not who I was and I am somebody new, but where does the change in my thinking have to happen? between what I was like 
and what I am now. Right? Where does the renewal of my mind have to happen so that I am thinking the way God wants me to think? My mind is being renewed, and therefore I'm being transformed by that. Right? And, and Colossians 3, in a parallel passage, talks us being renewed according to the knowledge of him who made us. Right, So the renewal actually comes through knowing God and his truth for us. In fact, that's been all through this passage in terms of where it comes from. Look at, I, I said in verse 20, you learned Christ. In verse 21, you have been, you have heard him and been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. So the truth is what transforms us. That's why in verse 24, it's created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. If you even go back up earlier to verse 15 of chapter 4, how do we grow? It's speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him. So it's the truth of God, which is the source of righteousness and holiness and it is the instrument that God uses to renew us. Remember when Jesus prayed on the night of his betrayal, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. All right, so between the old me and the new me, something radical has happened that can be described as a new creation, but that new creation hasn't been completed yet. Right? That's what we talked about this morning. We're alive, but not yet glorified. So I am to be being renewed. Right? The process of moving toward full Christ-likeness is the process of the transformation that happens in me through the renewing of my mind. Or again, I'm trying to bring in a bunch of texts to help you say, see that there's a consistency to the way the scriptures describe this. 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. That mirror is clearly the Word of God because that's verse 18 and 14 and 15. It talks about whenever the old covenant is read, when Moses is read, and you go right into chapter 2 and it says, I'm not going to adulterate the Word of God, but speak the truth clearly, right? That is the Word of God. So that's the mirror. And I've used this illustration before. It's not, uh, James 1 is, I look in the mirror of the Word like I'm looking at it on the wall and seeing the reflection of myself. That's not what this is. I'm looking in this mirror and I'm seeing the glory of the Lord. So I'm actually looking in the mirror as it's reflecting to the glory of the Lord. So I'm seeing the character of Christ as revealed in the Scriptures, and I'm being transformed into that image. It's the Word that does that. It's the Word that does that by the Spirit's work. Right? We are being transformed into the same image, even as by the Lord, the Spirit. All right, so my being renewed is the work of God's Spirit through His Word as I am looking into it, as I am beholding the glory of the Lord, as I'm trying to understand what the will of the Lord is. That's how God is transforming me. 
All right, so that's the ground. Just Here's what I, I just challenge us to think about. So on every issue, I just pulled out, uh, pulled out of my hat while we're talking here. Work. All right, so, so here's the thing is, uh, the scriptures are very clear. There was an old way of thinking about material possessions that was very me-centric. Right? The new life is actually God and others-centric. I'm supposed to actually work laboring with my hands so that I can have to give to someone who has need. All right, so a part of my work is to care for myself but also have sufficient resource that when I see one of my brothers or sisters in Christ in need, I can give to them. So, so that's how I should be thinking about work. It's not actually oriented toward me ultimately. It's oriented toward God because Ephesians chapter 6 says that we do it not as men pleasers and with eye service, but as to the Lord. So I do my job for the Lord and it produces for me resources that I can use for the Lord and for other people. Right? That's, that's a different way than the way we're taught here. Right, so we, we get shaped by it. Right? So, so here's what I, and, and this is just the, the, the practical side of it. Right? So what I would challenge us is to become more deliberate and intentional about mining God's word about the things that we are, are uh, wrestling with or should be wrestling with. Right? So... Um, you know, your let's do let's do Christmas. Christmas giving's coming up. I mean, so it's Christmas is the giving season, right? So if I want to think, so how should I think about stewardship, about giving? I mean, how how should my thoughts about giving be controlled by God's word? And and I just I'm not trying to say giving presents as much as a life of stewardship. Right? What does the Bible say about that? Because, and I've said, I mean, I've con, I've challenged, uh, I've challenged pastors and ministry leaders. I mean, one of the solid foundations that Dr. Rice laid here was an approach to giving that took seriously the the principles of God's word. I mean, I, I I've said to guys, you know, because they all run these capital campaigns, and they'll basically build them on a premise that is anti-biblical. Right? Don't give to be seen of people. And then they'll run their capital campaign. Hey, if you'll donate to us, we'll put your name on a, you know, a brick in our garden of gratitude, or, you know, we'll put, put it on a leaf. Their whole motivation is to get people to be seen. Right? Because, well, if you don't let people know they're going to be recognized, then they won't give. Well, you know, Jesus says, if they give to be seen of men, they've received their reward in full. I mean, do you really want your treasure? All it's going to amount to is a brick in the garden of gratitude that's going to burn up someday. Or to be on a little nameplate where it's going to be there until it gets removed and no reward in heaven. Right? So, so here's the thing is when we think about giving or collecting gifts or encouraging gifts, are we shaped by marketing strategies Secular donation campaigns, or are we shaped by what the Word of God says? 
Right? I mean, that's, that's really, I mean, it's basically going, well, people go, well, you're not going to get as much money that way. And then, you know what the right answer would be? One, you don't know that. Two, that doesn't matter. Because obeying Jesus is what matters. Right? And, and good shepherds would go, and helping people have eternal reward is more important than whether or not we hit some figure. Right? Because that's worldliness. Being carried into the church because we're not stopping and going, hey, this system might work in a world that's self-centered. How do you appeal to self-centered people to give more? Well, make it about them. And that's the problem with pragmatism. It works. So we buy into it. But biblically, that shouldn't be the standard for us. It should be, what does God's word say? All right, so if a believer was, was wanting to go, all right, so how should I think about giving? The stewardship, God's entrusted me with resources. How should I think about it? All right, what, what you, I think the first thing you do is you pray, request God help me, understand the word, embrace it, apply it. Then you open up the Bible and you research it, right? Identify what the Bible says about it. And, the, and that may mean you have to, the first thing you have to do is define and sort of uh, delimit or narrow the subject matter. And I've always found it really helpful. Uh, Rudyard Kipling's little six working men who taught me all I knew, what, why, when, where, how, and who. Just about any subject can be broken down to, to pursue understanding about it by subjecting to those six questions. What, when, where, why, how, and who. And so if you took those six questions and then tried to answer them biblically, what does the Bible say about this, right? What, what kind of giving does the Bible describe for believers to be involved in? And then start to think of Bible verses. Start at Genesis and work your way to the maps, right? What does the Bible say about it directly or indirectly? What does the Bible say about when we should give? Why we should give? how we should give, where we should give, who should give, right? There's, there's Bible, I mean, actually, I, I sat down in my office, you know, an hour ago, and I thought, hey, maybe I'll do an illustration. I flipped over a sheet of paper, wrote those six questions, and I could actually have probably like a 15-point sermon because there's about two or three answers to every one of those questions I could just think of right off the bat, right? Because there's passages that address it. And, it, and once you've covered all the passages that say something about it, then you'd go to the indirect, right? Are there, are there passages that have implications that say something about this? Are there passages that have examples that I should learn from on this? Are there passages that might be analogies? Like, for instance, the Old Testament sacrificial system was a means of giving that was an expression of offering. And the New Testament calls our giving sacrifices and offerings, which are a fragrant aroma to God. So there's certainly an analogy there. So what could I learn about the kind of gifts that God thought were acceptable to him and what kinds weren't acceptable to him so that as I think about my giving, my offerings to God are consistent with that, right? There's just, there's just all kinds of biblical information that would shape the way we think about this 
really important subject of laying up treasure in heaven. Right? Because Jesus wants us to really live for eternity. That's why he says, lay up yourselves treasure in heaven, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know, we, ought, we usually get that backward. Right? I mean, it's, it's true that if you're not giving to it, your heart's not there. But what he's saying is actually when you place your treasure in heaven, your heart's going to care about heaven. Right? When you invest in something, then your heart gets attached to it. Right? And that's what Jesus says. Lay up your treasure in heaven, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He doesn't say where your heart is, that's where your treasure will go. That's, I think, true too. But in this case, he's saying where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That is, you will actually start to have a heart that cares about eternity when you've turned the orientation of your giving toward eternity. When you're pouring everything into now, you know where your heart's going to follow? It's going to follow now. Right? It's a crucial part of how we break free from the stranglehold of this world. So what I'd say is we need to, we need to be shaped. So here's the thing. I'll just say this. I'm going to land the plane. What issues... In your life, do you think you need to make sure that your thinking is being controlled by God's word rather than the world? And what are you going to do about it? Right, that's the We're coming toward the end of the year, start of the new year. What will be your study project for 2023 to have your thoughts be controlled by God's thoughts? Right? What are the things that you need to really say, hey, I need to understand what God's Word says so that my thinking is shaped in a way that now will be the energy, really the engine that drives a life of godliness. Because as long as I'm trying to beat the behavior into line while leaving my belief system untouched, I'm going to be just a frustrated person because I'm trying to force myself to go in a way that I actually don't think is the best way. You need to change the way you think and the way you act. You need to have both of them. And so make certain that you're working to have your mind and heart shaped by the words of God so that your beliefs can be the generating energy of your behavior. You do what's right because you've come to know and believe it is right. And therefore, God's shaping your heart, renewing your mind, transforming your character. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. It is, it is such an incredible valuable gift. And sometimes because we live with such abundance of its presence, we forget its real value. We, we have Bibles, we have access to teaching, we, we, we have books about the Bible. It just seems like at times we could we could die of thirst while we're swimming in an ocean of fresh water.
or give us, give us hearts that want to just drink from the well that you've provided. And to do so intentionally. Lord, there's lots of issues about which we need to be sharpening our thinking, strengthening it, fortifying it. So help us, Lord, to, to do that because we want to know Jesus better. We want to know your will be renewed according to the knowledge of Christ who created us. And so work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.